You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. I've had a lot of implants come and go over the years, like say genital implants. I've, I put a bunch in and then eventually I get bored with them. I want to do something different or something new comes out. So I remove them, let them heal, put in new ones. Um, I currently have a set of horns that you can see. Mm-hmm. They are what, what we would call fourth generation. Everybody drinking blood, everybody eating brains. Some monster party. Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones. Some monster party. Thank you for listening to episode eight of Where's the Line? My name is Kevin, and with me today is my friend Samantha. Hello. <laughs> Jamie's on sabbatical right now. She'll be back eventually. Uh, but filling in for her today is my friend Samantha. Say something disturbing, Samantha. Turd fucking. Turd fucking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay. You know that has to come up later, right? Yeah. Turd fucking it is then. All right. More on that later. We've known each other for how long now? I was thinking about that today and 17 years. 17 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know. Yeah. Joined together by our mutual love of horror movies and generally macabre media. Yeah. The grossest of the gross. So... Oh, I just want to say uh-huh. thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for being here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I promise it will it'll get less awkward as we move along. Uh, it's been a while since we've done one of these. Part of that is because I broke another bone. I broke my hand <laughs> in a very peculiar way. I'm not going to go into it, but uh, if you'd like to see the x-rays and the pins that are sticking out of the side, you can take a look at our Facebook page. So for this episode... This is one of the deepest rabbit holes I ever went down. And this just started off with me wondering what the story was behind this old viral gross-out video called The Pain Olympics. Right. That's how it started out. And it ended just a couple of days ago, finally, with me having a conversation with a man with horns. The voice that you heard at the beginning of this episode was from the Human Tackle Box. His real name is Russ Fox. And we'll be hearing more from him later on. They call him the human tackle box? They call him the human tackle box for good reason. Have you seen a picture of him? Yes. Oh, yes. For this episode, we spoke with several people who, because of the sensitive nature of some of this and because a lot of this falls within a legal gray area, uh, they weren't willing to go on record. Even so, we really do appreciate those people talking to us. And if you're listening to this now, you know who you are. So, are you ready to get into this episode? I am so ready. As I mentioned early on, uh, this all started with us wanting to know the story about a video called The Pain Olympics. So let's start there and take a look at this video. Okay. I have not watched this yet. I haven't seen this in a very long time, and I remember my initial impressions of it, but I want to see it again and see if I feel the same way that I did back then. I'm scared. (laughs) all right you want to describe what's going on on this this website right now yeah so to the left of the screen there's a young lady pulling on her nipples 
And on the right side of the screen, there's an ad for (laughs) (laughs) Try Not to Come game. All right. I see those ads all the time on websites I go to. Oh, really? What websites? I'm not at liberty to say. (laughs) X hamster. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I got... Did you know that I got an Oculus? No. I got an Oculus Go, and... The day after I got the Oculus Go, I broke my right hand. Are you serious? I am right-handed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The BME Paint Olympics final round this is very easily found online. You can just search for BME Paint Olympics, and uh, it'll probably be the first hit. Oh, my goodness. Here we go. Oh, my gosh. Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's the guy who's just tied a string around his testicles and started punching it, punching his testicles. Now he's got a, a cutting board, a hatchet. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. oh, what was that? I don't know. Did he just cut it off? Yep. So this guy's, like, making total hamburger meat of his genitals. What the fuck was that? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what was that thing he squeezed out at the very end there that came out like a little lump? Was that part of the inside of his penis or like poop coming out of his penis? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so what do you think about that? Um, well, I thought it was brutally disgusting. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, so he just mutilated his cock and balls and squirted something out of it that looked like mustard and ketchup mixed together <laughs> and uh that was the most inventive use of a cutting board i've ever seen <laughs> what'd you think uh well guess what what that video is fake that was fake i know i know i watched that i saw it years ago i thought that, that it was real yeah and i i thought maybe when i saw it again now that it it would not look as real. And I'm somebody that has watched a lot of uh, Mexican drug cartel murder videos and Taliban videos. And you have too. Yes. Um, Yeah. I thought that was real. I did too the first time I saw it. And now that I've seen it again, uh, I feel like I would feel the same way if I were just seeing it for the first time. But in 2012, someone posted an AMA request on Reddit looking for somebody that was actually in that video. Yeah. And... Before long, the man who actually created that video replied and participated in this long discussion thread about this. The first thing you wrote was, quote, I am the person who created this video as well as all the BME series of videos. Yes, this one called BME Paint Olympics is faked footage. And I would have thought that was obvious to anyone looking at it, but I guess not Uh everyone has the encyclopedic knowledge of what it looks like when you chop up someone's genitals that I have. Okay. However, (laughs) the various BME torture trailers and related videos are completely real and contain arguably more extreme footage. So this is one of the first things that I came across when I started to look up the origin of the Pain Olympics video. Right. And... This guy is the guy who actually made the video, and that quote from him brought up several questions for me. What is BME, for one? Who the fuck is this guy? Probably most importantly, why does this guy have an encyclopedic knowledge of 
what it looks like to chop up genitals. Right. So, obviously, I got to know more about this guy. Oh, my God. Okay. So, it turns out the man replying to that thread uh, and who was responsible for the Pain Olympics video is a Canadian named Shannon Larratt. And this turns out to be an extraordinarily interesting guy. He was the highly intelligent and a little bit troubled son of an oil baron and a South African actress. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, I don't think she ever did a whole lot, uh, but she was an actress. I never really... Okay. I never saw anything that, that I would recognize her from. In his extensive personal blog, which you can still find online, he claimed that as a child... He enjoyed removing the still-beating hearts from live animals and watching those hearts grow still in his hands. That's upsetting. That is upsetting. One of the very few things that that I have a low tolerance for is any kind of uh, misbehavior towards animals. Agreed. I have zero tolerance. Yeah. And surprisingly, I come away at the end of this story with a good opinion of this guy. Okay. Uh, this is this is something that he atoned for later on, whether he recognized that he did or not. And uh, we'll get to that okay. towards the end of the story. Uh, Shannon Larratt did really well in school. In high school, he won the 10th grade division of the Canadian National Mathematics League. I'm not sure how big of a deal that is, but I did find his name in the paper for having won that. Oh, wow. And around the same time when he was in high school, he was starting to experiment with uh, personal body modification. Among other things, he would poke holes into his own skin and thread wire through those holes. Okay. And this behavior eventually led to hospitalization for him. He was hospitalized, getting psychiatric treatment. Uh, and also, in conjunction with that, he was being prescribed a lot of pharmaceuticals to try to deal with this, what people felt was uh, self-harming behavior on his part. Yes. When he gets on this medication, he stops poking holes in himself and running wires through it, uh, but he falls into a depression at that point and attempts suicide. Eventually, he finds a new psychiatrist who says, hey, all of this medication you're taking, this is bullshit, you don't need all of this, and he takes him off all of that, and at that point... This suicidal desire of his goes away, but he does return to this kind of self-harming behavior or what people thought was self-harming behavior at the time. And very shortly after this, uh, he's only about 19 at this point. He creates something that is pretty incredible and very much ahead of its time. And that is a website called Be Amazing. And what's that stand for? Body modification easing. This is 1994. I don't know if you ever tried to make a website back in the early 2000s, which, or especially the late 90s. Yeah. It was a fucking nightmare back then. Our website now is WordPress. Mm -hmm. You just go in there, you drag and drop things in. Back in the early 2000s and before that, creating a website was just a complete fucking nightmare exactly you had to go i mean for me i did that in the early 2000s i went and got a disc from walmart yeah <laughs> to make <laughs> a website for a shitty band that i was in oh my god and it had um there <laughs> i just used whatever was on the disc so when you would go to the website little squirrels would fly across the screen because <laughs> that was that was something that was included on the disc <laughs> 
so I, but I, I was not, uh, I was not Shannon Larratt. Shannon Larratt's actually, uh, even at 19 and at 1994, is already doing computer programming and graphic design. And he has this idea that he wants to make this online space to showcase these things that he's doing to his own body. And uh, this website starts catching on, and he very quickly realizes that he needs to expand this website into something more communal so that people with interests like his can meet here and share what they're doing. And most importantly, so that these people don't feel isolated, so they know that there are other people around who have this uh, uncontrollable desire to poke holes in themselves. Right. And that's the start of this website, BME. And I said this is before it's time. So what he's made here is a community website where people post pictures of themselves. They post their thoughts, what's going on in their lives, Mm -hmm. very much like Facebook. Yeah. But this predates Facebook by more than a decade. This actually predates MySpace by nine years. Does it predate LiveJournal? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It predates Twitter by 12. This even predates Google by five years. In fact, uh, by 1995, which, you know, obviously the Internet was a much smaller place back then. But in 1995, this was the 24th most visited site in the world. Wow. Holy shit. In the short body modification documentary, Open Eyes, Shannon Larratt discussed the body modification community's early days online. I think... I think that tools like like BME and now obviously there are there are a lot more as well. Um, were, were especially important in, in the early days where where there weren't really any other channels for, for people to communicate because there were there were so few people who were out about what they were doing that it was very difficult to find someone in your area that was was into heavier forms of body modification. So. Um, the internet sort of takes away the notion of physical geography. So, you know, even though, you know, there's, there's, you know, say there's 100 people into whatever form of body modification in the world that are out and talking about it, you know, 100 people spread out over the globe is, is terrible. You're never going to meet a person uh, around you, you know. But if you take 100 people and spread them around a single website, then all of a sudden, no, they're talking and they know each other and they're not really that, that far apart. So now that he's created the site where all of these like-minded people who are interested in modifying their own bodies are getting together, this kind of empowers them to start pushing the envelope a little bit. And in 1997, uh, Shannon Larratt was one of, if not the first person in the West to have his tongue split. It's weird to say it, but a split tongue doesn't seem like that big of a deal now. Agreed. But in 1997, you had never seen anybody with that. Right. And then there was a few. There were a few ways to do this. A couple of them were surgical. There's one way um, that you have someone surgically split your tongue and they put stitches in it. Another way is to have them surgically split your tongue and cauterize the open wounds. Right. The yeah. third. Do you know what the third way is? I believe I do. Tell me though. Again. <laughs> the third way is uh, you essentially pierce your tongue. You shove some fishing line. Into yeah. the pierced hole, and then you yank the fishing line out the front. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, ten years after this, in 2007, Shannon and two of his friends became the first people to ever receive eyeball tattoos. 
Okay, thank you for saying that because, yeah, his eyeballs were very interesting. He had his eyeballs, he had the whites of his eyes tattooed blue because he was a fan of Dune. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when they did this, they weren't entirely sure of how to go about this. They had a good idea, but they wanted to go through several methods to see what worked the best. So one of the things that they tried was a standard tattoo gun. Oh, my gosh. So they, they put a tattoo gun to their eyes. It gets worse. Okay. That sounds pretty fucking bad. That does sound pretty fucking bad. Uh, what would be worse than that, though, is the uh, tap and poke technique, which if you've ever seen Native Hawaiians. Yes. Getting those tattoos. That's what we're talking about, where you actually take a needle and tap it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were doing that to their eyes. As it turns out, though, uh, the best and really only effective and acceptable way to do this is by using a needle to inject dye in this very small one millimeter gap between the conjunctiva, which is the thin layer of tissue that covers the wide of your eyes, and the sclera, which is the wide of your eyes. So you very precisely have to insert this needle into that very, very tiny area and insert the dye, yeah. and then you can get the effect that you want. Now, if you fuck this up, yes, <laughs> it's, it's bad. There was a Canadian actress recently who tried to have her eyes tattooed, and it did not go well. You know, I accidentally stuck a needle in my eye once. How? This is kind of embarrassing, but I was a teenager, and I had a sty on my eye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Anyways, I was messing with it with a needle. I was on my, uh, you know, I had my elbows propped up on my bathroom counter and leaned into the mirror so I could get a really good look. And then my elbow slipped and I stuck the needle right into the white of my eye real quick. What? I know. I'm telling you. This, <laughs> Did it puncture it? Yeah, it went into my eye. And then I was certain, like, I was going to have to go to the doctor, but I was afraid to tell my mom and dad. So I just kept quiet about it. And nothing happened. My eye was okay. Did it bleed or anything? No. It, it got juicy, but it didn't bleed. <laughs> Expand on the idea of the, the juicy eye. Um, It was just like extreme hydration. It just started watering, and it was kind of like not water, but, it, it, you know, I actually thought it was my ocular fluid seeping out of my eyeball. But what was it? I don't know. That's, I don't know. I To this day, I don't know, but my eyeball's okay. <laughs> Is that what people call you, juicy eye? No, that's for something else. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Sorry. All right. We were talking about his eye, yeah. his eye tattoos. Yeah. Right. Beyond the eye tattoos, as you'd probably imagine, th this guy was completely covered in tattoos. And it's said that Shannon Larratt had a partially bisected penis. Right. Partially means just halfway down the shaft. Well, there's a couple of ways that you can bisect your penis. One way is what you probably obviously think of, which is where you start at the head and slice it down the middle. Yeah, that's what I first think of. The other way is where you make an incision underneath the shaft that does not go all the way to the top. So, Oh, okay. I was looking at this, and I was trying to think of what it reminded me of, and it reminded me of when you put a hot dog in the microwave too long and it splits. Yes. That's what it looks like. That's how I like my hot dogs in the microwave, <laughs> when they split. Still? Yes. After this? Yes. <laughs> 
So I was also thinking, you know, so I all I've seen is bisected penises online. Why stop there? Why, why not quadrisect or octasect? Oh, my gosh. Do you remember Willie the Waterbug? Did you ever have one of those when you were a kid? No. Willie the Waterbug was this water toy. It was a bug that stood about two and a half feet tall. Yeah. And off the top of its head, it had about six or eight rubber tentacles. And when you hooked a water hose up to it, the tentacles would just go everywhere. That sounds familiar. And it okay. was it was the worst <laughs> fucking toy because those tentacles were made out of rubber. Yeah. And when they got started going really fast and they hit you, it was like being hit with a switch. You would just have webs all over your oh legs. Oh, my gosh. But anyway, I, just, I involuntarily had a vision of somebody having an octosected penis and then going to the restroom and it just all eight pieces just flying all over the place like Willie the Waterbug. Um, you know, I was really curious about how a bisected penis worked, you mm-hmm. know, because I thought surely after it's been bisected, you can't have sex. Oh, but, yeah. But that's not true. It is not true. I read a lot about... Um, Say a guy has a bisected penis, and he can just push the two pieces together and put it in a condom, and it's just like normal. And actually, it makes it fatter. Really? hmm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Shannon Larratt, in a lot of ways, opened the door for people interested in this kind of extreme form of self-expression. One of the more extremely expressed people that you're likely to ever find is our guest for this episode, His stage name is the Human Tackle Box, and his real name is Russ Fox, and he and I talked together on Skype. So we're talking to Russ Fox. I had contacted you before I realized that you were in a movie that I really like, American Mary. You're you're credited as a penis guy, and uh, you were also a um, flesh art consultant on that movie. Correct. That was actually kind of a funny story how that went down, if you could hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So so I'm working on set for, for American Mary, right? And we've now, I've been credited as a consultant. I am watching over all the stuff to make sure it looks legitimate. I've signed on as a stunt double for a suspension. Then one of the days between filming, I'm at home and I get woken up by a phone call from, uh, I think it was Jen Saska. She called me at 8 a.m., I don't, at that point in my life, I wasn't usually awake at 8 a.m., so I was pretty groggy. But I wake up to a phone call from her, and she says, Russ, I hate to call you so early and ask for your cock, but can we use your cock in our movie? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just like, what? What do you mean? Like, well, what do you, what does this entail? And they're like, oh, we're just going to, you know, cover it in prosthetics and makeup, make it look all gnarly and infected. I'm like, "Let, let me call you right back. So I let her go. I think about it for a second. And I'm like, this does not sound like my entrance into film. I don't want to do this. <laughs> so I go, I go and knock on my roommate's door. I'm not, I can't say his name for um, confidentiality. But um, I knock on my roommate's door. I'm like, hey, uh, you want to be in a movie? And he's like, sure. What does it entail? I tell him. And he's like, okay, let's do this. So I called her back. I'm like, okay, well, my roommate will be my stunt cock. My cock. <laughs> but I'll do the role. So they're like, great, perfect, awesome. And we go and do the, we do the role and we go do the shooting. And that day it was funny. I remember we're, we're ready to go shoot and we're on set and it was time to shoot the, the penis scene. 
it's just basically a flash. It was really quick. Yeah. But it was time for my, my roommate to go back and shoot. And I'm like, come on, do, do me well, do me well. And he's like, I'll try. And he goes in there and he shoots it and he comes back out. I'm like, how'd it go? He's like, sorry, man. It was really cold in there. Like, no, <laughs> damn it. But uh, because of his job, he was unable to have his name in the credits for this role. Uh-huh. So as far as the credits on the movie are concerned, it was me. <laughs> And that being the case, I wish I just did it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I should have just. I, I, I watched that movie just a couple of days because I'd seen it a long time ago, but I watched it yeah. again a few days ago when you said that you had talked to us. And I saw that scene and I was wondering if I was going to ask you if that was you or not, because there was a little bit of discrepancy in the color of your beard hair and the, the hair that was in that <laughs> video. The carpet didn't match the drapes. Yeah, the huh? carpet did not match the drapes. Uh, I'm glad you just brought that up on your own. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a really funny day. But it was overall, it was a great experience. It was my first time acting in a movie. It was just a cameo, like it was maybe a minute and a half. I was actually in the film, mm-hmm. and since then, I've got to do some some higher profile stuff. There's a film that just on February second, I think, was um, premiered at the Toronto Film Festival there. And it did really well. The film's called To the Night. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm a supporting actor in that. One of the lead actors, his name is Caleb Landry Jones. He, he played Banshee in X-Men First Class. Um, he was in um, Get Out. He was the, like the crazy brother in Get Out. And he was in the Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri or whatever. But he, he's a great actor, like really, really intense dude. And I got to work alongside him as his best friend in the movie To the Night. So I'm really excited for that to come out soon. Nice. I, I think I saw that on your IMDb page, mm-hmm. which I followed some things. I watched a, uh, a show on Netflix that you were interviewed in earlier today. Cyborg stuff? Yeah. 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 A lot of that stuff recently. Um, yeah. And I, I want to get into the, uh, the tech implants that you have. But uh, can, we, uh, can you take us through um, kind of a list of some of your more major modifications that you have? Yeah, I've had a lot of implants come and go over the years, like say genital implants. I've I put a bunch in and then eventually I get bored with them. I want to do something different or something new comes out. So I remove them, let them heal, put in new ones. So there's been a lot of changes over the years in that area. Um, I once self-implanted a device called the North Star version one. I right saw a picture of, of that. My, yeah, right in the center of my chest. That was a device that um, it was an active implant. So I had a battery in it. And it would power up with a magnet switch to turn on five red LED lights. And it would just steal it for 10 seconds and turn off. And it was a very basic device, but it was still novelty and and fun. Mm -hmm. And I put it in a location on my chest that integrated it into my tattoo. And it really um, mimicked the the arc reactor in Iron Man. Yeah, that's what I I thought when I saw it immediately. Yes, I called it my arc reactor. Um, so I kept that for about four years or so until the battery died. And then it, as soon as the battery was dead, I took it out. Um, it, the battery was planned to to have a shelf life. So that wasn't a surprise when that happened. Um, I currently have a set of horns that you can see. Mm-hmm. They are what what we would call fourth generation. So when you, when you do horns, you start small and you work your way up because you can't put something too large in your forehead. The skin is too tight. It won't accept the implant if you go too big. So... I started with the second size, and my horns were done by uh, a man named Steve Hayworth in Arizona. Um, he is considered the uh, 
the father of 3D body art. He created these sorts of implants for this purpose when the medical field was only doing things for medical reasons, he was doing it for art reasons. Um, so he supplies my silicone. He's done a bunch of my, my implant work for me as well. So he did my horns, my first set at second generation. I took a little bit of a risk there. I started at the second size up, which means there's a bit more stress on the tissue, more of a risk, but it worked out fine. Kept them for a year, removed them, put in a size bigger. Kept them for a year, removed them, put in a size bigger. And I stopped at fourth generation because motorcycle helmets. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Maybe you could yeah, cut, little, go, uh, you could cut little holes out on the, on the motorcycle oh, helmet and I, still I have did. a lot of protection I, probably. I've already done that on the inside, but if they get too big, they're going to start protruding right through the helmet. That would actually be pretty cool, I think. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, so I've got my horns. Um, on the back of my left hand, I also have an implant that you might be able to see there. If I yeah. turn it, you see some shattering. So that is two body suspension hooks. Um, they're made of silicone. It's just to symbolize my passion and love for body suspension. Uh -huh. But it's uh, they're not usable hooks. They're squishy silicone. Yeah. And my left ring finger, I have a magnet implanted so I can feel magnetic fields. It's for sensory input. Um, on the back of this hand, I have two transponders, one NFC transponder and one RFID transponder. I use these for security, for data storage, for access to different things in my life. Um, I have a split tongue. My tongue was split twice. Once it was split in Toronto by um, one of my original mentors for when I was new to the industry. Um, it was done with the method that was really popular at that time, which is cut and cauterize. And since then, we've learned that cut and suturing has a better result, less regrowth. So I later ended up cutting my tongue again myself and suturing it just to get, add a little bit of length. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a, a, some extensive scarification work done on my chest and stomach, my, my torso piece. That I have since been covering up with tattoos. Um, I love the scar work, it's great, but that was me when I was 20. I'm, I'm just kind of a different person now. I'm 36 years old and I've got my, my theme is kind of changing, so I'm going with that. Um, so I've been covering my, my body in kind of cyborg themed tattoos. Mm -hmm. I have many, many hook scars from hundreds of suspensions. I've got a lot of hook scars on my upper back that have been covered up by tattoos. Um, my knees have extensive scarring from many suspensions. And then my elbows and my chest and random parts of my body I've used. And I think, oh, I once had a magnet implanted in the center of my forehead. I kept that for about four and a half years. It was a bit of an experiment. We know that there is magnetic activity within the brain. So I was wondering, well, what kind of effect would having a magnet, a small magnet in front of my brain do? And we kept it for a while and it, it was kind of fun for, you know, party tricks and stuff. <laughs> but anytime I would bump it, it would be very sensitive. Uh -huh. And as time went on, that sensitivity increased and there was no like issue with the, the tissue around it, like the muscle tissue, the dermis, everything was intact. There was no inflammation, but I would feel it in my brain when I hit it. It seemed like I would get minor migraines if I bumped it. So by the time that was happening, I had enough. I pulled it out and immediately migraine stopped. I read that you had 50 piercings by the time you were 18. You had your first one. You had your ears pierced or you had an ear pierced when you were five. Is that right? Yeah. 
what was the progression in terms of age after that? So five years old, you get your ear pierced. How do things progress to where you are now from that? So when I was five years old, um, I had a really supportive and open-minded mother. I asked her if I could get my ear pierced when I was in kindergarten. And she, she said, yeah, sure. And took me to a hair salon. I got my ear pierced. I, it was my left ear because at that time there was some sort of ridiculous stigma about males are only supposed to have one ear done. I otherwise, it's okay. It's ridiculous, but whatever. I still ended up getting my left ear pierced. And then every year through elementary school, I got one more earring in the same ear. So by the time I hit grade eight, I had eight or nine piercings from the top to the bottom of this year. At that point, I was shaving my head into mohawks and dyeing my hair bright colors and stuff. So I'm, I'm now at this point 14 years old. Then when I left elementary school and I went into high school, I found out about body piercing and tattoos. So that's when I started getting tattooed. And I got my first tattoo was picked off of a wall in a tattoo shop in Ontario. It was on a, like this tribal dragon on the back of my, my right calf. And then I, I got another tattoo on my lower back and then, oh no, my upper back. And then I got one on my lower back. And then I got one, um, I got a band on my right arm, or sorry, my left arm. And I got a band on my right wrist. And then I got a symbol on my the right side of my neck. So by the time I left high school, I had a, a bunch of scattered little tattoos. I had gotten my bridge pierced, two lip piercings, my tongue pierced, and then some new piercings in my right ear at that point. So I started getting into to the actual body piercing side of things rather than just ear piercing. Then I left high school. Um, I think I was about 18 or 19 years old when I started piercing. And when I started piercing, that just opened the floodgates. At that point, I started piercing myself all the time. And a lot of them didn't stay, but a lot of really ridiculous stuff that I'd never seen before. I just, I would come up with an idea and I would pierce myself. So I had this mentality that if you can pinch it, you can pierce it. The internet was just starting to happen around that time. So that was when I, I was just doing all these things and, and kind of reinventing a lot of wheels until I found a website called BME. It blew me away. Like when I found that website, I found all these people that are doing all this amazing stuff that I'd never even fathomed things like tongue splitting and implants and suspensions and all this stuff. And I was just blown away, absolutely blown away. So I immediately got involved and started reaching out to the people that were closest to me and started making friends through that website and put up my own page, kind of like started waving my own flag, you know? Mm -hmm. And from there, everything changed. Uh, I met um, one of my mentors, through the, through there. He was just a wealth of knowledge. He was so helpful to me. He, he cared about things being done safely. And that was just it's something I'm never going to forget. It really made such a big difference in how I was able to progress as an artist and the ethics I carried with me from day one. So he, he's somebody that I'm always going to, to hold in really high regard for that. Also, Shannon Lorat, just for creating that site and bringing everybody together. It was such a huge thing that he did. And there's a lot of you know, love and hate for the, for the man for a lot of reasons. But I'm, I'm really glad that I was able to call him a friend and that I was able to be as close to him as I was when I was. Because he connected me with so many people and so much information that was also 
absolutely priceless to me in, in you know progressing through my career. You mentioned Shannon. How well did you how well did you know him? I know that you visited him in uh, twenty twelve a few times. Were you guys close or like I'd call him a friend. Um, we didn't hang out together all the time or anything like that, mm. but he was always there for me if I needed something. Um, he would help me out in ways like if, if I needed his help, he would always be there for me. Sometimes he would throw opportunities my way. He would call me up and be like, you know what? I think you should connect with this person or he'd refer people to me. I have went out and like ate with him before and hung out at his house before, before I left Ontario, I, I grew up in Ontario and in, it was 2004 that I moved out of there. So from, I'd say 2001 to 2004, I would see him quite a bit because we both lived in Ontario. Mm -hmm. I would go to his parties and I would, you know, we would, we had a lot of mutual friends, so we would, we would cross paths quite a bit. But then after I moved to Vancouver in 2004, I started touring Canada and my career really started taking off at that point. And anytime I would travel through Toronto, he would always welcome me into his home to, to come visit, to come bring some people in and do some suspensions or, you know, collaborate in any ways we could. So I would say that that pretty much sums up our relationship. You said you went to some of his parties. Did you ever go to any of those barbecues? I went to a lot of those barbecues. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen a few things about those barbecues. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think one of them ended up on a porn site. Well, back then, all the, all the people that I know now that I met through BME, we were all pretty young back then. You know, mm -hmm. We were all kids. And BME was like our melting pot. The only thing that we all had in common was our love for body modification and the fact that we were liberated by this website and by knowing each other and by just being free. And we were community in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. So if somebody was having a party and they stamped the word BME barbecue to it, people would travel from all over North America. People would fly in from other continents to go because that community sense was so strong. And so many people would feel at home and akin to, to the people at these parties in ways that they don't have where at home, where they live. So I was one of those people. If there was a party, I would go anywhere. I would hop in my car and drive hours and hours and hours. I wouldn't care. I would always go. And those parties were amazing. They were a lot of fun. They were very debaucherous. Oftentimes, they ended up with a lot of sexual activity going on um, openly, publicly. So, you know, a party would start out a little bit. I wouldn't say innocent. None of them ever started. There was no innocence to any of these parties. But it would start out relatively just fun, lighthearted, and silly. We're all drinking and hanging out. Some people aren't drinking. Some people are straight edge, whatever. But it wouldn't matter. You could have people that are doing drugs. You could have people that are drinking. You could have people that are straight edge. And we would all just get along really well and we'd have a great time. And then there would be a certain turn in the night where now a third of the party is naked in a pile in the corner. <laughs> so that sort of thing was pretty commonplace. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you what you thought about the importance of BME to the body mod community. Like, so Shannon Laird made that thing in 94, I think. Is that right? Yeah, so, something like that. Yeah, it was like crazy early back in the days when it was just a huge pain in the ass to try to make a website. Yeah, he he was a big he was a big innovator. Like, if I remember correctly, he was he was the one that made the first online gambling site, or like the online casino, and so he was a big innovator in in um, 
as a developer online, like software developer and such. So he started BME as um, basically a chat room and everybody had handles and they would just go in there and chat. And then eventually it, it took on the form of a community site, like a social media site. And it did a lot for people because it brought us together. And it, it especially for me, like I was from a small town, Ontario, there was no no piercing or tattoo studios in my town. I had to drive an hour to get to one. And this now connected me with people all over the world that were doing things that I'm interested in. So it allowed me to, to form a lot of friendships, bonds, connections with people all over the world. And it allowed me to grow professionally. Like BME did so much. It, it taught me what was out there and who was doing it. And that was a big kickstart for me to take the initiative to go and meet these people and to learn about them on my own. So Shannon was once quoted as having said, when a child is given a marker, its first impulse is not to draw on paper, but to draw on its own skin. When someone asked him if denying employment based on body modification is comparable to race and gender discrimination, he said, quote, well, it's not really the same thing. Race and gender are essentially immutable. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. The type of discrimination going on against body modification is more like discrimination against people over sexual orientation. How do you feel about this comparison that he's making between body modification and the LGBT community? I'm going to have to say I kind of disagree. I don't think that you can choose who you love. I think you're born that way. And I think body modification is a hobby, an interest. And I just don't think that they are parallel in any way. When I read that, I was on the same page as you. When I, when I read that, I was actually just a little put off by it. But when I started going through some of these books that he's written mm -hmm. and reading about more and more of these people, I started seeing that a lot of these people develop these interests around puberty, around the same time that people develop their sexual interests. Right. Okay. And for a lot of these people, it seems like their sexuality is inextricably linked to their interest in body modification. So at first... I was really put off by that. I did not agree with it at all. But then as I got more into that, I'm kind of coming around to that really? a little more now. Okay. That does make a little sense that they're discovering this about themselves around puberty. So I don't know. I still feel like comparing it to sexuality preference and thus the discrimination that happens, it just, I guess I just don't know. But I'm kind of leaning towards they're not the same thing. But I also don't believe that they should be discriminated against at all. So You just don't feel like it should be put in that same category. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was on the side with you. I mean, I think no matter what no matter, you know, what you've decided to do with your own body, if you're skilled at whatever profession that you're practicing, you should be allowed to perform in that capacity. Exactly. But you know what? What? I also as far as I know, I don't believe anyone that's participated in body modification, extreme body modification, has ever been killed because of it, like so many. Oh, that's true. I had not actually thought of that. Yeah, like the LGBTQ community has been. So I don't know. I feel like that's a definite marker right there. Like they just haven't been persecuted like homosexuals have been. Again, from that Open Eyes documentary, Shannon elaborated on his idea about a necessary interconnection between body modification and sexuality. 
at least from my point of view, um, the sexuality is what drives most body modification. Even if people, you know, don't really want to admit it, I think that's I think that's why most people get tattoos, um, even even really simple stuff, because the way that you express yourself using your body is is the way that you sort of you know do a mating dance with the rest of society, and you are expressing who you are, uh, what you're looking for. I really think that a lot of people shy away from from sexuality because. You know, people don't want to put sexuality on TV, you can get in trouble for it, but I think it's sort of disingenuous to, to, to hide that aspect of it. So Shannon eventually published three books on the topic of body modification. The ModCon book in particular covers what I think would be considered to be the outer edge of what you can do with modification and survive. Yeah. Uh, to me, the most interesting, probably because it's also the most invasive, is the modification known as nullification. Nullification? Nullification is when you voluntarily remove or amputate a part of your body Okay. without needing to. Yes. In ModCon, which, by the way, um, all of the books that Shannon wrote are available as free downloads on his blog. There'll be a link to that on the website. In the ModCon book, he speaks with a man who goes by the pseudonym Bruce, who is a voluntary eunuch. And Bruce claims that since he started becoming outspoken online about having his own testicles voluntarily removed, that over 700 people communicated with him wanting to know where and how to have that procedure done. Really? So apparently there are a lot of people out there who, for one reason or another, want to become eunuchs. A lot of the people that want to do that say that they have a, a sort of hypersexuality that they want to kind of get under control. Okay. And other people just seem to find the aesthetic of a lack of testicles to be appealing. Yeah, it can detract from, like, the majesty of, like, a big shaft. And then you have, like, <laughs> these little... Wrinkled clementines hanging uh, underneath them. Yeah, it does. It looks like it. Testicles or a scrotum with testicles in it kind of looks like you just taped a cat brain between your legs. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's so many different types, though. There's the high and tight, mm -hmm. the loose and long. Mm -hmm. There's the one lower than the other. Yeah. <laughs> That's the worst look, <laughs> in my opinion. So one step beyond becoming a eunuch is to become a nullo. A nullo. I've heard of that term. You probably Did you hear that from me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been a little obsessed with nullos for several months now. Uh, a nullo is someone who has voluntarily castrated themselves and also given themselves a penectomy. Or maybe not given it to themselves, but has had castration performed and also a penectomy okay. performed. So essentially, uh, this is a man who is left with nothing but a very tiny hole through which he might urinate. Right. There's one Nullo in particular that I've been trying to track down and who I'm really hoping will speak with us eventually for an episode on him in particular this person goes by the pseudonym of Gelding, and unlike a lot of eunuchs and nullos, 
he doesn't let this voluntary amputation that he's had performed on himself slow down his sex drive. I've actually seen a uh, video of this guy receiving anal sex from a partial leg amputee. Okay. Who was not performing anal sex on gelding with what you would normally do that with. He he was using his nub. Okay, I thought so. <laughs> I got to talk to that guy. Yes. I don't know why I feel so compelled. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I think this is going to be the most unsettling thing I've ever said on this show, which is probably saying something. Oh, my. When gelding climaxes, despite what a lot of people believe, semen does not come from the testicles, only the sperm comes from the testicles. So despite the fact that gelding does not have a penis or testicles and all that he has is this little tiny hole. Yeah. When he gets really aroused from having an amputee shove his leg nub into his butt... He ejaculates through this tiny hole where his business used to be. I can't believe it. So if the ejaculate isn't stored in his testicles, where is it coming from? What? What? You need to – we're going to Google some stuff later. (laughs) (laughs) One of the more outlandish body mods featured in the ModCon book – is from a man who goes by the name of Jesse Gerald. Gerald inserted a catheter behind his testicles, which is routed through his urethra to his urethral opening. Attached to this catheter is a butane tank. Oh, my gosh. Did you see this? Yeah. <laughs> so so you know where this is going. Yeah. Flame-throwing <laughs> penis. <laughs> That is a wonderful use of body modification, I think. Yeah, probably one of the most insanely majestic things you could ever see. Yeah, I really do encourage people to download this book and flip through it. Flip through it with the family, gather the kids around. So what was your favorite body mod that you saw in any of these books? Well, I came across a gentleman, a Frenchman, named Wanda Le Pew. Have you heard of him? I saw a little bit about this person in the Meet Tommy book that Shannon Larratt wrote, but I didn't really get into it. Right. Yes. So he was profiled in the Meet Tommy book, and I just read it all. And it's a very disturbing tale. Um, You want to hear a little bit about it? Nah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, tell me about it. I actually genuinely don't know anything about this. Okay. So... Wanda Le Pew is a French masochist worm, okay? Worm? A worm. What does that mean? Okay, so as he describes, a worm is someone that just wants to be squished, stomped on, um, spit on, shit on, all the filthiest things. He's into what he calls filthy love, which I love. And I'll say this, Wanda Le Pew is his online pseudonym, which he derived from uh, the Wanda comes from the name of a dominatrix that he's played with a lot. And actually, 
there's an interesting story about her and how his chest became removed. Um, how so, his chest became removed. Yes. Like I, a, I guess we're going to get there. We're going to get to that. Okay. And the pew part is French for filthy whore, which he always describes himself as just the filthiest of whores. So Wanda Le Pew. I don't know what his real name is. Wait, Wanda Le Pew. And Le Pew means filthy whore? Yeah, Pew means filthy whore or filthy prostitute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like French slang. And he, so Pepe Le Pew was exactly Pepe filthy whore? I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> this is going to be disturbing. But it all started when he was eight years old in France attending a boarding school. Now, when he was eight years old, he says this was the first time that he was fucked in the ass. That's when he realized that he was into degradation. So that's where it all started. And then two decades later is when he realized what he really wanted to be, which as he describes is a garbage, a toilet, a shit, and a toy for extreme sadist. He loves being degraded. He loves eating human waste. He says there's nothing better than to eat a hard turd with a little dash of semen. What does the semen do? I mean, is that flavor? I think, or is oh, that... it is definitely for flavor. He, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> this Wanda What else does he put it on then? I mean, I'm assuming he eats like regular stuff sometimes too. I mean, like, does he put it on like French fries? Oh, probably. Okay. So his particular love is for stranger semen. Wanda LaPue says that at any given time, he will swallow the contents of 30 condoms full of strangers ejaculate while he's masturbating. He says he loves the smell, he loves the taste, and it has to be strangers. All right, I've got some problems with the story. Okay. For one thing, this Catholic school experience sounds like a fantasy. It does a bit, doesn't it? And number two, I can get a lot of things. I can get, I think that I can get I think that probably within the hour, I could come up with chloroform if you wanted it. (laughs) What I could not come up with would be 30 condoms full of ejaculate of 30 different men. Well, I'm glad you said that. How does he get these? Exactly. Okay. So Wanda LaPue says that he has a guy that keeps him in dirty condoms. He has a friend. He has a dirty condom dealer. Yes. Okay. What? So Wanda LaPue says that he has a friend that's a French whore. Okay. okay? And, you know, he'll. Oh, a prostitute. A prostitute. Yeah. So the prostitute will collect all of the condoms, you know, over the course of a week or a night, what have you, and give them all to Wanda LaPue. Because he loves it. He loves drinking spit. Uh, he obviously eats shit, vomit. Is this legit? Is this a real thing? This guy is totally legit. Is he still alive? Yes. I wondered if maybe you could contact him. He's very interesting. Wanda LePew is into scat, degradation, high levels of pain and abuse, and is even in a quest to become infected with AIDS. He says that he wants to be impregnated with AIDS, because it would celebrate his real whore nature. As far as the body modifications that Wanda LePew has, he has a navel piercing, a frenum piercing that he wears a ring in, and his breasts are removed. For years, he had been pumping paraffin wax 
into his boobs to, you know, make them larger. And this essentially killed his tits to where he had to have them completely removed. What? I know. What the fuck? Oh. <laughs> we have got to talk to this person. Like, I feel like we need to only put a little bit of this in there and then actually talk about this person for, like, a three-fucking-part episode. I know. I could not believe what I was reading. I actually did cut out the vast majority of Samantha's Wanda Pew story, including, believe it or not, the most unsettling parts of that story. I did this for a couple of reasons, none of which are that it crossed any kind of line. One reason for the cut is that the story we're telling here isn't about Wanda LePew, it's about Shannon Larratt. Second, and probably more importantly, I cut the rest of this extremely depraved story so that you can possibly have a where-is-the-line multi-part Wanda LePew epic to look forward to sometime in the future. We've actually been able to confirm that Wanda LePew is still alive, and we've just started opening up a line of communication with him. So we'll see where that gets us, and we'll have a Wanda LePew at least one Wanda LePew episode later on, uh, if it turns out to be worthwhile. Our guest for this episode, Russ Fox, is a professional piercer and a tattoo artist. He was at one time even one of the few people performing eyeball tattoos. This conversation that Samantha and I had about Wanda LePew reminded me of something that I'd been struggling with throughout researching this story, and that is... How do you ensure that people undergoing these extreme body modification procedures are sound enough of mind to competently make these decisions for themselves? So I brought this up with Russ. Uh, so there, there's a condition called body integrity identity disorder. And yes. uh, people with that disorder a lot of times want to have a limb removed or they want to become blind. How do you, how do you make the distinction between... <laughs> Someone who has a psychological issue that's causing them to seek out a procedure and someone like yourself who just wants to have a, a body modification. And if it makes the person happier when they're done, does it even matter? Well, I think that it's a very important responsibility on the artist to, to make that distinction. So if, if a person came to me, for example, and wanted something done, I assess them to the best of my abilities. I'm very intuitive. I'm good with people. I'm, I read people well, but that's, you know, it's, it's my responsibility to make sure that I'm not going to do something to somebody because they ask if I think they might regret it. Mm -hmm. So if I ever catch a hint that they may regret it, I will respectfully decline and I will explain to them why it's, it's very important that if I'm not comfortable doing something for, for you as a client, that you understand why I'm not doing it. And I'm always going to be respectful in, in explaining to you this fact, but if, if I didn't do that, there would be people that do things all the time for psychological reasons, for emotional reasons, for kind of jump on the bandwagon reasons. It could be, you know, they just went through some sort of big experience in their life and it made them now want to make a rash decision. Like that person who just broke up with their partner and then they shaved their head. Things like that would happen all the time. And But in this case, we're talking about some serious, permanent physical changes. Yeah. So, again, as the... The artist, it's their responsibility to make sure that they're not doing something for somebody that they might regret or that that person is not going to take care of it or if they're not mature enough to take care of it or if this might cause some sort of detrimental effect to that person's life. I want to be able to sleep at night and I want to, to know that I'm making people happier 
and more comfortable in their own skin, not the opposite. So this website we've been talking about, BME, that Shannon developed and was running, while he was running this website, he gets married and has a kid, and that relationship eventually falls apart. And in this divorce, Shannon loses control of this website. The particulars of that divorce agreement aren't publicly known. It looks like maybe there was a non-compete clause in that divorce because Shannon, after losing control of this website, after this website being handed over to what at this point is his ex-wife, he's not allowed to make a web another website having to do with body modification. What's a little bit funny about this is that he loses control of this website. It gets transferred to his ex-wife. She now owns it. Because Shannon developed this site himself, hand-coding, apparently, a lot of it, Right. Uh, eventually some problems happen with the site that... Uh, no one can deal with except for Shannon. So he later on gets kind of brought back on um, as a sort of a consultant. He's still participating in the site. But by this point, this community, uh, a rather large community uh, on this website, has really kind of split. It seems like most of those people were siding with Shannon, but a lot of people went the way of his ex-wife. So this site had a lot of drama during this period, and the community seems to to have split apart at this point. Our interviewee, Russ Fox, didn't want to take any kind of sides in this split up between Shannon and his former wife. Uh, he did share with us, though, his thoughts on how this divorce affected the BME website and that site's community. And when that happened, I think that was... I don't think, I know that was the beginning of the end of BME as we knew it. BME still exists to this day, but a lot of people left because of that moment and haven't come back. Um, I have since checked it out and it's, it's just not really the same place that it was for me at that time in my life. So I'm not completely against it or anything. I'm just, I, I don't really put the time into it. So Shannon loses control of this site, which has essentially been the focal point of his life since he developed it. Right. But I don't know if this was part of this divorce agreement. This is all speculation. But Shannon's ex-wife takes control of the site. Shannon seemingly ends up with primary custody of their daughter. And initially, losing this site is a huge blow to Shannon but he kind of changes at this point and becomes very devoted to this daughter of his. And it's really kind of surprising to see someone who looks like Shannon Larratt did. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not one of those people who's, you know, really into someone's physical appearance denoting what their character is like. Yeah. But if you see someone covered in tattoos, with eyeball tattoos, with ears gauged way out, you know, earlobes that are hanging way yeah. down, 
you don't really look at that person. Even me as, as you know, I like to think that I'm a really open-minded person. But if you see someone like that, devoted, loving father just isn't what comes to mind. And that is apparently what what Shannon became at that point. So he gets back together with a woman that he had dated previously when he was a lot younger. And the two of them seem to be very much in love. The three of them do a lot of things together. They uh, go on trips together. They have all of these fun little projects together. It seems like, a, apart from from their physical appearance, this seems like a very happy, very happy family. And if you read through Shannon's blog, there's a lot of irony in there that is ironic and at the same time, very sweet in a way. So, for example, his daughter gets to the age where she's getting online. Okay. And this guy who is uh, has a little notoriety for having ran one of what a lot of people would have considered around that time to be one of the more disturbing websites in the world. Yeah starts getting really worried about what his own daughter is going to find online. So if you look through his blog, he talks about things like putting parental controls on the computer for his daughter and <laughs> making sure that the screen on their home computer is always facing out so he can tell what okay. his daughter is looking at. Yeah, This man with a partially bisected penis who has run a website with photos of voluntary amputees has decided uh, that that the computer monitor me- needs to be turned outward so he can keep an eye on what his daughter is looking at on the internet. <laughs> That's great. And I mentioned at the very beginning that as a child, Shannon claimed to have removed the still beating heart from animals and watched these hearts slowly become motionless in his own hands. The same man who did this along with his uh, girlfriend, who eventually became his fiance, and his daughter found an injured bird in the yard one day, which they brought inside and nursed back to health and blogged about the entire experience. Oh, well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, losing the sight was obviously very upsetting for him because it was essentially his life's work. No doubt, yeah. Um, but he also, and he acknowledges this, that that he grew a lot as a person. He attributes most of that to the relationship that he had with his fiance during this period and with spending so much time around his daughter. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, but probably being forced away from this obsession, not entirely forced away from it, but not being so intertwined with that community kind of allowed him to grow in different ways that he wasn't able to yeah. prior to that. So things are going great for uh, Shannon Larratt, his fiance and his daughter. But then Shannon starts to get sick. He starts developing uh, aches. He's feeling bad in general. He's in a lot of pain. And this goes on for several years, and he ends up on a lot of pain medication. Uh, he's going to the doctor a lot, but the doctor's don't seem to be convinced that there's anything really wrong with him. So a lot of these doctors are suggesting that maybe there isn't anything actually physically wrong with him, that these symptoms are manifesting themselves 
because of this growing addiction that he's developing for these painkillers. Yeah. And this goes on for several years. But in late 2010, he actually receives a diagnosis of tubular aggregate myopathy. And this is a disease that causes the fast twitch muscles, which are the ones that are used for short bursts of energy, like running or climbing stairs, to degrade. And also, people with this disease have protein that builds up into these clumps in their muscles. And this is all apparently very painful and debilitating. People that have this eventually have difficulty walking and with any kind of mobility in general. But this isn't usually a fatal disease. When Shannon's diagnosed with this, he actually gains a little bit of optimism from this because up to this point, he's felt like he didn't know what was wrong with him. Now he does. He knows that there's not a cure for this, but he also knows that it's generally not fatal. Even after this diagnosis, some people that we've talked to who are actually very close with him still to this day are not completely convinced that Shannon actually suffered from this. Really? Some people that I talked to kind of uh, agree with the the doctors uh, before that he had slowly developed an addiction. Maybe he didn't even realize that's what was going on, but yeah. that his, his body was reacting negatively, sort of like withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. And the, the medication kept having to be upped to keep up with that. Right. That will definitely make you feel bad. And maybe these doctors to placate him gave him this diagnosis. Okay. I don't know for sure. Yeah. Nobody, I guess, will ever know for sure whether or not he had this illness. This optimism, though, that he got from this diagnosis of a very painful and debilitating disease starts to fade away over the course of the next couple of years. On March 16th, 2013, a post appears on his blog titled Finita la Commedia. That's an Italian phrase that means the farce is over. This post begins with Shannon noting that this post itself was either put online by his fiance upon his request or that it was issued via some sort of dead man switch. And this post is essentially a suicide note from Shannon. This is a pretty long post. A lot of it talks about the physical pain that he's been in over the past few years. Throughout this, he talks about his fiance with whom he was clearly very deeply in love. And he also talks about how much he's grown as a person since becoming a father. In terms of the body mod community, he wrote, quote, For a long time, the body modification community, while deeply isolated from the mainstream in a way that may be hard for younger people today to really relate to, had a wonderful sense of solidarity. Now, it seems like the majority of modification media is just about posting pictures devoid of any real stories or information, reducing them to visual pornography for people to cheer and jeer at. He goes on to say that he is optimistic the community might change course, and he encourages people to speak out against prejudice and in support of self-expression. After spending so much time looking into Shannon Larratt, I mean, this is a community that, I mean, like I said, I just delved into this from wondering where this viral shock video originated. Yeah. And so now after going through all this, I might be inflating this some, but... I'm kind of wondering what what this person's legacy is and if if this might not be 
one of those figures that's more important than a lot of people realize that he is. I mean, surely, eventually, you know, by now, absolutely, someone would have developed a site that would be a community for people who are involved in body modification. Obviously, that would have happened by now. Yeah. But if it weren't for Shannon Larratt, how long would it have been before someone did this? And if that didn't happen for five or ten years after when he actually did this, would that change where we are now in terms of acceptance of all of these incredibly varied and unique ways that people express themselves? Yeah. I think it's a little hard to understate how important this person was for self-expressionism. Yeah, I mean... We might not have had suicide girls when we did. <laughs> no, we probably wouldn't. And suicide I'm, girls I'm serious, would yeah. have probably been delayed yes. by at least five years. Absolutely. But you look around now. I mean, th- this was the first person to have his tongue split. This was the first person with eyeball tattoos. Yeah. This is the person that made a place online where people who like to express themselves by doing these different things that their bodies realized that they weren't alone for the first time. And all of these people, once they got together and realized that there were other people like them out there, started going farther and farther and farther very quickly. I just think that this is, I think that this is a person who is more important than a lot of people realize. It's somebody that I had never even heard of. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of Where is the Line? We'd like to thank Russ Fox. You can check out his website. It's russfox.com. That's Fox with two X's. Uh, He's very accessible online. You can search for him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'd also like to thank Jacqueline Carley for allowing us to use clips from her documentary, Open Eyes. You can find that on YouTube by searching for Open Eyes Body Mod Documentary. You can find links to everything I just described, along with a short article about this episode on our website, whereistheline.net. And while you're there, you might pick up a trucker hat or a coffee mug branded with Where Is The Line. Yes, they're awesome. I have to confess that um, since I broke my hand, I didn't feel like doing dishes a lot, so I've actually been using the coffee mugs. But I... (laughs) promise I will rinse them. If you order one, I swear I'll rinse them out before I send it to you. I'd like to give a very special thanks to my friend Samantha for helping out with this episode. Did you have fun? I had so much fun. Thank you so much. Before we go, we've got a couple of reviews to read. Scuns18 writes, excellent podcast. You guys get into the nitty gritty and I love it. I recommend you often on Facebook true crime podcast pages, but people say you're hard to find. Keep up the great work. Thanks for that, Scones. If you listen to the podcast via some platform where we can't be found, please let us know. And do what Scones18 did and recommend us to other people. One of our first listeners, Annetta, does that often. We've noticed and it's very much appreciated. We have another review from Hog Monster who writes, One of my favorite podcasts. 
Not technically a true crime show, but a show about the disturbing, depraved, and the macabre. Every episode, they try to find the line and then cross it to the applause of listeners everywhere. I never thought I'd know as much about horse buggery as I do now, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't fascinated. I enjoy the show, and I'll see all you sinners in church on Sunday. I actually know who that one came from. It's from my new friend, Tiny. Tiny. He has a podcast called Earth Oddity, and he's actually from Tuscaloosa, and it's actually a pretty hilarious podcast. Have you listened to it? Yes. Yes. Those guys are hilarious. Yes. If you've ever listened to Where is the Line and thought these guys are from Alabama, I was hoping to hear thicker southern accents. You might, you might give their podcast a listen. It really is hilarious. So that's going to do it. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Goodbye. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look under your